You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, well, good morning, Midtown. Always great to worship with each other and glad you could share in this special Sunday where we got to commission the folks that we just commissioned. Um, I know there's several folks that I've probably not met yet. I just introduced myself. My name's Justin Christopher. I'm one of the uh, pastors here, associate pastor here at Midtown. And just again, want to welcome you, particularly if you're here for the first time or maybe checking out church for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. Uh, I want to extend a special welcome to you and hope that this is a great safe place where you can ask questions and meet some great people to talk about those questions with. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Risen, but before we do, I wanted to make a couple uh, family announcements. One is I realized that uh, one person here wasn't on stage, was also Melissa Fu. Um, some of you guys know her, and she's moving to Houston, so be sure to say your goodbyes to her in this next couple weeks as well. And we do have a, a person who's here for the second time that I just want to kind of point out, and his name's Samuel Strong, so if you want to say hi to Samuel sometime today, that would be... <laughs> So nice to have Baby Strong, and Baby Strong is strong. He's right here with us this morning, so excited about that. Let me just ask a silly question to start. Uh, how many of you guys like, like crime dramas, right? Like, you, you know, you like, like Dateline or 48-Hour Mysteries or all the NCISs or the CISs and the Law and Orders, like everything, right? Somebody likes them because there's a million of them, right? And if you follow it, you know, like, the biggest intrigue of it is the whodunit. It's like the intrigue is whether someone's innocent or guilty. Like that's what kind of compels us to, to get interested in these shows. We want to know, is it true or is it not? And if you watch enough of them, you know that kind of the things that the lawyers and the, and the um, prosecutors are actually looking for most is they're looking for what? Motive and means and opportunity, right? Like those are the things. Like if you can, if you can nail them down on those three things, you've got a pretty good case. But if you're like a super good defense lawyer, you could actually kind of poke holes in some of those things, right? And maybe you could create reasonable doubt. But there's three other things beyond motive, means, and opportunity that are actually far more important than if the lawyer had these, had these things on their side, they'd likely win the case, right? And that would be the weapon, right? You've seen it in the shows. Then you've got DNA, of course, that's pretty solid. Or you've got eyewitnesses, right? Those things make for a pretty solid case. And so we're studying the eyewitnesses to the resurrection while we're doing this. I thought first I'd tell you a funny little eyewitness story of myself. Uh, myself. Um, on Friday mornings, I do like our shopping. So I go buy like the coffee and stuff, the creamers and stuff like that from Midtown. And about maybe six, nine months ago, I was driving into HEB, just, go, just going to go pick up my coffee and stuff. And I see this guy just sprinting across the HEB parking lot and another guy chasing after him. And I thought, uh-oh, this looks bad. I, I think there might be like a robbery or something going on here. And sure enough, I see him hop into this car with these two other guys and they just, like the getaway car. And they get in the getaway car and so I'm like, I'm going to follow this guy. So I just call 911, and I get on the phone with him, and I'm like, I think there may have been a robbery. And I'm telling him, I'm just telling this guy. We're driving through the parking lot slow, and they whip out on a 41st Street, and then I'm the eyewitness. Like, you've got the witness that saw him, but then I'm actually describing the car. We're driving through traffic, and I'm giving him the make, the model, the license plate, as best I can to describe it. It was really fun until we got to a, <laughs> until we got to a light, and then I'm like, right behind him at the slide. I'm like, this guy could get out of the car and come whack me. I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm kind of nervous at the first light. Then we get to a second light, and I think then they're on to me because they make a totally Ill illegal turn and turn back around. And it took me about 30 seconds to make the same turn. So I, <laughs> I made the same turn, but by, by that time, uh, he had got away. But right as I realized I had to tell the officer or whoever was talking to him on the phone, I said, oh, I, I lost him. Then I see this police car go whizzing by. I'm like, yes, I get to be a part of it. <laughs> so I never got to be an eyewitness um, in, uh, but we do have someone at our church who works at the jail, and he told me this person was arrested for robbery with a knife at a T-Mobile shop. 
And so the guy that was at the T-Mobile shop, um, he could identify him, and everything that I did as an eyewitness made it a pretty shut and closed case, right? This guy's gone, right? We got him for sure. What's the power of an eyewitness? And so we're, during this whole series of Risen, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at these eyewitness accounts, the people who witnessed Jesus rising from the dead. On Easter Sunday, Jake did a really great job describing the fact that one of the things that's pretty unique to the Christian faith is we, we really base our faith on a historic event. Like, that's the essence of our faith is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And, and what's cool about that is that as a historic event, like, you can actually use your mind and reason and, and think about whether this is true and decide whether it's true or not. And so what we're trying to do in this series is help you think through for yourself whether it's true, whether you believe that Jesus rose from the dead or not. And what we're going to do is we're actually go to the eyewitnesses because we feel like that, as in our murder cases, <laughs> is a great way for us to examine whether we could believe this or not. And so that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. I find it really unique that uh, when Paul was writing the first Corinthians, one of the earlier uh, books that he wrote, and he's writing the Corinthians, and in, in, first, in first Corinthians 15, this is the passage that we used on Easter Sunday, he gives one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, earliest creeds of the Christian church. It says this in first Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Like this was written about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and this was the first kind of creed. And it wasn't just something that Paul made up and he's writing because he says this was actually passed on to me. So very early on in the Christian faith, they came up with this very simple creed that we believe that Jesus died, that he rose and he appeared, and he appeared to people 500 at a time, making it verifiable. When Paul's actually writing this letter, he's saying, look, some of these 500 have died, but the others are still alive, so you can go to them as eyewitnesses and ask of their accounts. And he didn't just appear to 500 people individually, but 500 at one time. So it wasn't just a hallucination or a vision that everyone had, but they all had a shared experience. And so we feel like it's very important, given these eyewitnesses today, that we would actually look at the eyewitnesses during these next couple weeks, particularly because of what Paul writes shortly after he makes his creed, a little later on in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he says this, he would explain the importance of this belief. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. All that to say that this belief about the resurrection and Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead is, is utmost importance. Like he said, it's of first importance. And so let's look at these eyewitnesses together. Jake last week did a great job talking about the first two eyewitnesses, Mary and Mary, or we learned Mary and the other Mary. There were two Marys that were the first to witness Jesus. And so today we're actually going to look kind of chronologically, the next people that he appears, in, uh, appears to after he rose from the dead is Peter, John, and Thomas, and the disciples. We're particularly going to look at Peter, John, and Thomas. And so what I want to do is I want to try to look back at these guys' life. Let's give, like, give a little background on Peter, John, and Thomas. Then we'll actually ask the question, what did they claim? Like, what did they say really happened? And then we'll ask the question, why should we believe them? And then we'll ask the question, what does it mean for us today? Want to go along with me? Cool. Let me pray. God, we just ask that your spirit would speak to us individually. Um, you're the God who knows our hearts and knows where we are today. Pray that we could find our story, even in, even in these three um, 
very distinct disciples. And more so that we would ponder anew this resurrection and, it, and really believe it as these eyewitnesses did. Speak to us, we pray, and use uh, my feeble words. Use your spirit, be the one that, that speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start with the background of Peter, uh, John, and Thomas. Um, you can find a lot about these guys' background in the Gospels, so if you're not familiar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament that contain the life of Jesus, and you find a lot about these disciples. You, you hear a little bit more about some of them in the book of Acts as well, but we're going to look kind of at their backstory. So let's start with Peter. Uh, Peter was a fisherman, so we know that he, he started off as a fisherman, and when, when, when Jesus called he and his brother to follow him, he just said, hey, come follow me. I want to make you fishers of men, and so he left his fishing business to start following Jesus. We also know from some other stories that Peter was married. We know he was married because Jesus actually healed his mother-in-law, which also shows that, like, Peter was really an honorable guy because he loved his mother-in-law. Like, who loves mother-in-laws? But just joking. I love my mother-in-law. Brenda, I really, I really do. But he loved his mother-in-law. So we know that he was married. We actually know, too, from one of Paul's writings that when, when Peter would go on missionary journeys, he actually took his wife with him. So they did some of these missionary journeys together. Biggest thing that we learn about Peter, because he's the one that we see the most about, is that he was really kind of a natural leader. Like he was a natural leader. If you find the list of the disciples, he's always the first one that's mentioned. And that's really distinct to the writing of that day. Like the historians and the writers of that day would put people in order on list of names based on that. So he was a leader. But we also know he was a leader because he was the, the first to speak up, right? If you're familiar with some of the gospel stories, you know that this was either good or bad. <laughs> like sometimes. Peter would nail it, and he'd be the first to speak up or answer one of Jesus' questions, and other times he'd be completely wrong, but he was always the first to lead. We also know about him that he was also the first to act, like very eager to do whatever was asked to do, like he was the only one of the disciples that actually tried to walk on the water when Jesus invited them to do so, but he was also the only one that drew a sword on the night that Jesus was arrested and, and cut off someone's ear. So we've got a guy that's very ambitious and acts on things. We've also got a guy who... I would say maybe particularly at one time of his life, he overpromised and underdelivered when he told Jesus, like, I will die for you. I'll do anything for you. But we know that on that last night when Jesus was arrested, that he instead denied Jesus three times, and he felt awful for that. We're going to come back to that story in a minute, but three times he denied Jesus. So he's this bold guy that wants to do everything that is right. He's willing to step out, but he also takes many wrong steps along the way. And ultimately, at the end, at least this part where we're stopping the story now, he kind of disqualifies himself. Because of his denying Jesus, he decides he's just going to go back and be a fisherman again. Do you find yourself in the life of Peter at all? Ever like ups and downs spiritually, like trying to take a step of faith, but also taking some really bad decisions as well, saying things you wish you wouldn't have said or something like that? That would be Peter. What about John? We know a little bit less about John, um, not as much as Peter because he doesn't speak as much. But we do know a good bit about him. We know that he too was a fisherman, that he and his brother James, they were fishermen, and Jesus called them to come follow him, and they left their business to go follow Jesus as well. One of the things as you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus often spends time with, with just James and John, those two brothers, and Peter. And so among the 12, there was actually this like closer group of three that he spent special time with. So they was, he was one of Jesus' closest followers as well. You don't get as many glimpses into his character, but you do in two particular stories that I find interesting. One was a story when they were actually, Jesus was on his way back to Jerusalem and he asked the disciples to go before him and actually go through a Samaritan town and make plans for him to stay there and to, to eat and, and be there through the town. It says that the Samaritans actually rejected him. Like they said, no, I don't want, we don't want Jesus coming through here. No. 
And so the disciples come back to Jesus, and John and James, his brother, say, hey, Jesus, can we call fire down upon these people? Like, that, <laughs> that's where he got his nickname, Thunts. Uh, they were called the sons of, sons of Thunder. Because here he was, this guy that the Samaritans had said no. And it could have been like an, a good motive that he really loved Jesus and wanted them to honor him. But either way, you've got this guy, a little glimpse of his character that he's pretty judgmental. He's quick to judge. And it says, once he said, can I call down fire, what happened? It says, Jesus rebuked him. So we know that his intent and his heart was not right. And Jesus told him, no, we're just going to go to another town. He's quick to judge. And there could even be a hint of racism there too, because the Jews uh, were racist against the Samaritans because they thought they were like half-bred Jews. And so there could have been even a little bit of racism in his heart. He's quick to judge, very self-righteous. Then you have another story of John uh, that I think gives a little insight into his character, that he was a mama's boy in some ways. <laughs> so we know last week Jake talked about there were a lot of women that followed Jesus as well, and one was actually James and John's mom. And so one day they sneak away, James and John and his mom, and they sit at Jesus' feet, and the mom makes this request, like, hey, when your new kingdom comes, Jesus, can you have James and John, can you have my son sit on your right hand and your left hand? And the other disciples hear about this, and so it starts this argument amongst them until Jesus, of course, has to remind them, like, hey, this isn't how the kingdom works. Like, you become greatest by being the least, the first will be last. And then he says that famous thing about himself, or even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's having to teach these young disciples. John, you can tell from that story, is comparing himself with others. He's wanting to be better than everyone else. He's, he's always thinking about himself as it relates to other people. Can you relate a little bit to John, maybe some of you? Uh, a little judgmental, a little quick to respond, who maybe compares yourselves to others and wants to be more godly and appear more godly before other people? This is the guy we're talking about, John. And third, we get Thomas. Y'all are familiar with Thomas? He's got a nickname. Anyone want to say it? Doubting Thomas, right? So here's what we know about Thomas. There's far less about him. There's actually only three times in Scripture where he actually speaks up, and two of them are very much related to doubt. Uh, first one is in one of my very favorite passages in all the Bible in John 14, when Jesus is talking to his disciples on his last night with them, and he says to them, hey, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in the God and believe also in me. Uh, in my Father's house, there's many rooms, and I'm going to go away and prepare a room for you. I'm going to make a way for you to have that room. And we see that, that, that Thomas's first response is, but, but God, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus says famously, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Thomas, like, you've been following me for these many years and you're still asking questions, the simple ones of like, what is the way to God? He was doubting. Or even most famously, and we'll get into this here a little bit further in a minute, but when he's with the disciples who first witnessed, we're going to get to this in a minute, they first witnessed the resurrection. And at first it was just a few of them and Thomas wasn't among them. So we saw Mary and Mary, and Mary witness Jesus, second people, some of these disciples. Then Thomas, they come to Thomas and say, hey, Thomas, we've witnessed it. Mary and Mary are right. We saw him. We talked with Jesus. And then Thomas famously says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. Can you relate some to Thomas? Do you have any skepticism in your heart? Any doubts or constant questioning of God? I hope that you kind of find your story. It might be par partially in all of these people, but maybe there's one of these in particular that you can relate to, Peter, John, or Thomas. Peter, I call the guy who really wants to be a follower of Jesus, but is up and down, and he ultimately uh, has a major failure and feels disqualified. 
John, I say, is a guy who's best, who wants to do the best and wants to follow the rules, prone, though, to being very judgmental and comparing himself with others. Or Thomas, a guy with constant nagging questions and filled with unbelief and doubt. Those are the three guys we're looking at. That's their backstory. But now let's look at what they claimed and actually what happened that really changed what they believed and who they were. So what did they claim? If you want to follow along, I, I think the slides are working. We were having some problems with them earlier, but we're going to be in John 20 and 21. We're going to kind of read a huge chunk of Scripture pretty fast, um, so I'm not going to highlight a whole bunch of uh, details, which there's so much good stuff in them, but we're really particularly going to ask as we read this, what did they claim? Like, what did they claim to see? That's what we're going to focus on. So in John 20, it starts this way. Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they've taken my Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and he believed. Remember we said last week that it was first, it was Mary and Mary. Mary and Mary were the first to go to the tomb and see it empty. At first, they just report that the tomb was empty, so they haven't seen Jesus yet. We'll get to that in a minute, but then now... She goes back and tells the disciples, and then these two run, John and Peter run, and they, what do they say? They say what they saw was an empty tomb and the clothes laying there. Those are their first two claims. Notice, too, by the way, that John talks about being the faster runner. I'm telling you, this John guy, he's, he's always comparing himself to other people. He has to mention it twice, doesn't he? <laughs> Poor slow Peter. Slow in his mind and his feet, I guess. So these are the first two claims, right? The tomb was empty, the clothes we're laying on the floor, all right? Now, uh, we're not going to go to this part next in John. If you're in John 20, you can keep reading, but that's actually what Jake taught on last week because then what happens, the disciples go home to report the empty tomb while Mary goes back to the tomb, and that's where she actually sees Jesus, and he speaks with her. And so that's when she actually says, now I haven't just seen an empty tomb, I've actually seen Jesus. And now we'll pick it back up when she goes back and tell, tells them uh, what she had seen. Uh, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After, the, uh, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Notice the emotions there. They start off filled with fear because they were kind of under the impression that like, if Jesus really was gone, like the Romans were going to say that we stole the body somehow. And so they're locked and fearful, afraid to do anything. They're not the bold disciples that we come to see later. They're fearful. And then what are their claims here? They're pretty wild claims, right? That Jesus appears to them. And he didn't knock. <laughs> he didn't come through the door. He just appears, right? They claim that Jesus spoke to them. He says, peace be with you. And they claim that he actually said, look, you can see my hands. You can see my side. They could see his physical body. They could see the scars. That's what they claimed at this first appearing. Now, after this, the disciples then go back because Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was not one of the disciples that was there for that first appearing. So now if you pick back up in 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it by my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So what are the claims on this next occurrence? It's real similar to the first one, that Jesus appears. He just appears, didn't use the door, that Jesus spoke, that they could see his body, but now one step further, they were able to touch his body. Thomas touched his body. This is a physical resurrection. This was not an image. So it could have been that Thomas, in part of his doubts, may have been thinking, well, you guys probably saw an image or a ghost or you, you thought that you saw him, but I want to see it tangibly. I want to feel it. And so Thomas was convinced in that moment, this was no vision. This was a physical body that I touched, and it was Jesus. And he names him right there, his Lord and his Savior. He claims that he was physical and could touch him. This was the second appearing of Jesus. Now we'll go to the third in chapter 21, looking one more time at the things that they claimed. Chapter 21, verse 1, after Jesus appeared to them again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel, and, and, uh, from Cana and, and Galilee, the sons of Zodi, and two other disciples were together. Again, here you've got all three this time. You've got Peter, John, and Thomas together again with five other disciples. By the way, John's always really careful to describe, like, who were the people there. What he's trying to do is he's trying to say, this can be validated or not validated. Here's the people that you can go ask. They're all going to tell you the same story. That's why he's so careful to list all the names of who was there at every appearance. And then this is kind of a part of the story we'll go through quickly. He says, but Peter said, I'm, I'm going to go out and fish, Simon Peter told them, and so we'll go with you. So they went out and got in a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood by the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you caught anything? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your nets on the, on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of such large amount of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples in the boat uh, were towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw the fire burning coals and the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring me some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed up back in the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, uh, even so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples as he was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead. John's so uh, particular in his book of really describing each of these stages and the three times that he appears. In this third one, we get all the same things, that he speaks, that he was there, that he was physical. But we also learn something new that they claim, that this resurrected Jesus had the same powers that he had that they witnessed as they were following his disciples. That he could do a miracle in a minute and catch 153 fish. This resurrected Jesus could perform miracles. And not only that, one more proof to his physical nature, he eats, he makes them breakfast. This was not an image. This was not some hallucination. This was a man that they could feel, they could touch, that would eat and cook breakfast for his friends. 
These are the claims of the disciples, the claims of these first three viewings. And you can see kind of with each one, they get a little bit more drastic, right? Like they're a little more wild, the things that they're expecting. So you might be asking the question, then why should we believe them? There's lots of reasons. Today, I just want to mention three, three reasons why I think we should believe these claims. First is that they're believable because of how their lives were changed. Second, they're believable because of how they died for these beliefs. And third, they're believable because so many others have believed their message. So we've already looked at their lives prior to the resurrection. What were their lives like now after the resurrection, after these experiences where they've experienced these three times that they spend with Jesus? Well, Peter, we know, instead of being Peter the disqualified, becomes what Jesus named him all along, Peter the Rock. His life is radically changed, and he becomes the man that he wanted to be. In fact, if you were to just go on reading in chapter 21, after they have this breakfast, what Jesus does is he gets together just with Peter. And he says to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I do. He says, well, then feed my sheep. And he, he does this three times with him, reinstating, going back, taking him, definitely taking him back to these three denials and these three times to reinstate him and say, Peter, you're the rock. You're the rock. I need you to go and lead my church. And so what does Peter do? He responds in faith. And when you see Peter in the book of Acts, it's amazing. Like he becomes the leader that God intended him to be in the first preaching that the gospel that happens in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter that's the one that's proclaiming the good news about Jesus having risen from the dead. In that very first day, 3,000 people start to believe as well, just, just because of the message that Jesus has risen from the dead. 3,000 more believe, and you continue throughout the book of Acts, and he's got more times where he's persecuted, he's brought before the authorities, but this time he never denies Jesus. He's faithful to the end, believing and trusting that Jesus has risen from the dead and preaching this gospel of Jesus risen ultimately till his death. Historians believe that he died in Rome, ultimately, and that he was crucified like Jesus was crucified. He believed it to his death, and he was a whole new man. What about John? One of the things I find most interesting about John is John suddenly became the number two and was content with it. Remember how, like, you list the names usually? In the, in the Bible, they list the names chronologically. Well, when you see the book of Acts, we see that it's, it's, it's Peter and John doing these things together, but John is happy to be the number two. He's a new man because he's experienced something different in his life that he doesn't need to compare himself with others. He's convinced now that God loves him as he is. This judgmental John, we could call him, he turns into what we now call the apostle of love. Like if you read the book of John and if you read particularly 1 John, you see that, that John writes about God's love more than anyone else. Tell me if you've heard these phrases before. God is love. We love because he first loved us. We know that you know God if you love because God is love. No greater love has anyone this that he laid down his life for his friends. This was John transformed, become the gospel or the, the apostle of love. His heart was changed. He didn't die. He's the only disciple that actually didn't die a martyr's death. Uh, though he faced multiple persecutions and ultimately a huge chunk of his life was, was exiled to another island. Uh, historians say that he actually probably at the later end of his life was freed and he possibly died in Turkey, but the only one that wasn't martyred. But he was faithful to his belief that Jesus has risen from the dead till the very end of his life. And then we've got Thomas. We don't see much about Thomas in the book of Acts. We see that he's in this upper room gathered where all the disciples kind of come together before they start before God gives, fills them with the uh, Spirit, and they start the first church. But what we do know about Thomas was that his profession of faith that we just read in John 21, that he proclaimed, I believe. You're my Lord. You're my God. 
I'll follow you. We know kind of through history that he actually became the uh, disciple that traveled all the way to India preaching the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, I remember when I was in my campus ministry days at UT, there was a, a new ministry that started about 15 years ago called One Way. It was a particular ministry for Southeast Asians, mostly Indians. And as I got to know and fellowship with a lot of these Indian believers, they would, they would tell me, they'd say, hey, how did you come to faith? What's your story? And they would say, oh, have you never heard of the, of the Apostle Thomas? Like, he's the one that went to India, and I can trace back my family belief from, from this man. Thomas actually was a martyr too. He died for what he believed in. Jake touched on this a lot during Easter, so I don't think I'll spend a lot of time there, but, but do you think that you would really die for a lie, something that you knew was a lie? If this was all just a hoax and they're just building it up and trying to create some new movement that's all based on fiction, I don't think that you would die for a lie. Plenty of people die for things that they believe in, but not for things that they, don't, that they know themselves not to be true, right? Yet all these disciples, minus one, died because they continued to preach that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I think for me, one of the more compelling things about this is that their lives changed. Because I think about my life. I think about that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And if you were to talk to my parents, they would say at the time that I came to faith, I was a very, very angry teenager. Very rebellious, angry teenager. Yet when the guy came and shared the good news about Jesus' resurrection and I put my faith in Christ when I was 14 years old in 1988, my life began to change. And I had a guy named Barry that that walked with me and discipled me and taught me how to follow Jesus. And you know what happened? My life radically changed. I mean, radically. Where my parents were like, who is this kid? <laughs> like, it was, it was so different. They couldn't believe that, that I was just not the same angry, rebellious teenager anymore. And guess what? Now, my parents are believers. My brother's a believer. God has all over that, but I know a huge part of it was them just witnessing my life. Can you all point to that when you think about your testimonies? Is there anyone in your life where you actually saw someone who said that they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, that they had put their faith in him and Jesus was alive in them? And you're skeptical and you're thinking, yeah, right. But then you watch their life and you see it transformed. It's one of the greatest apologetics to the Christian faith is to see someone's life radically changed. I've seen it. I believe that you guys have seen it. And we see it here in these disciples. It should give us pause to say, maybe Jesus really is alive. He's radically changed these guys, and I've seen him radically change my friends. And then the third reason I find particularly compelling is that so many others believed since then. Like, this was not an easy message to believe, right? You've got these guys saying that there's a man that's risen from the dead, and they're calling him Lord, and they're worshiping a man. This is not cool to the Jews that all of a sudden changed their views and believed. This is not acceptable when they started taking the gospel out to the Gentiles and those who were polytheists and all the different uh, parts of the world. Like, this is a radical idea that there's a guy named Jesus who died for our sins and he rose from the dead and we put our faith in him and he's changed our lives. I find it just super compelling to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because so many people have continued to believe it throughout the ages. Like, here we sit 2,000 years later and there's 2 billion people around the world on Easter Sunday a few weeks ago that sat and worshiped a risen Lord who had called this man Jesus their Lord. I find it even more compelling because it's so worldwide. This isn't just something that's stuck in a particular culture or a particular ethnicity. I'm gonna do a Jake and quote from uh, Tim Keller. Sound good? Because you, you can't go wrong quoting from Tim Keller, right? But I love what he says in uh, his book. I think it's the, the meaning of, um, what's the name of the book? Meaning of making sense of God. There you go. I'm thinking meaning of marriage. He's written so many books. <clears throat> but he writes it this way. Um, 
One of the unique things about Christianity is it's the only truly worldwide religion. Over 90% of Muslims live in a band from Southeast Asia to the Middle East to North Africa. Over 90% of Hindus live in India in immediate environs. Some 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. However, 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25 in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% and growing fast in Asia, 12% in North America. Professor Richard Bachem writes, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. That must say something about it. As we've seen, Christianity has been growing explosively in Asia and Africa for, um, for over a century now. It's no longer a Western religion, nor was it originally. It's truly a world religion. I don't know about you, but to me that's super compelling that there's still people like most of us here today that believe in this risen Jesus and worship him all around the world. People have believed this message. I find that very compelling. I've always loved, like one of my favorite things that Jesus says is right after Thomas makes this confession, if we go back to John 20, he says, my Lord and my God, he believes. But then I love what he says next. He says, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me yet believe. Especially when you realize that only 500 people, I guess 1 Corinthians says a little bit over 500 people, 500 people saw the risen Jesus. The two billion believers that worship him now have not seen him. And Jesus knew this was going to be the case when he, I think, kind of prophetically speaks this to Thomas, like, you've seen me, you've touched me, so now you believe, but blessed are those who believe that have never seen. That's what's so radical is our faith in Jesus is based on the testimony of these men and others that we'll be looking at um, next week. We're blessed because we believe even though we've not seen him. Last of our question will be, what does this mean for us today? And I think what I'd like to do is actually go to the actual letters that Peter and John wrote, and they wrote letters to the churches. In the first chapter of each of them, they point right to the resurrection and say, here's what it means for us today. First, we'll look at 1 John. First, it means that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Here's what John writes in his letter. I wish um, <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. This life appeared. He was with the Father. Um, sorry, I lost my spot there. This life appeared. We've seen him and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You see what he's doing there again? He's just pointing right back to it. We've seen it. We've heard it. Our hands have touched it. We are the reliable witnesses. And here's the reason why. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son and Jesus Christ. The reason that we can have a relationship with Jesus is because he's risen from the dead. Now, this might sound strange to you who, who maybe aren't yet believing in Jesus, but we believe that we can have a personal relationship with him, that we can walk with him, we talk with him, we worship him, we listen to him, he speaks to us. Jesus' spirit resides within us, and we can have a personal relationship with him because he's risen. And so for application, I would just challenge you guys to develop your relationship with Jesus. Like, this is what the resurrection means, that we can have a walking relationship with Jesus by talking with him, by praying by meditating on his scriptures, by fellowshipping together and worshiping together, we can relate to this risen Jesus right now. Develop your relationship with him. 
Peter would write it this way in his first chapter of his book. He says what it means that Jesus has risen from the dead is also that our eternity is certain. Our eternal life is secure in him. First chapter of 1 Peter, when Peter's writing his, his uh, churches here, they were scattered across the nations. He says, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us, what, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, an inheritance kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be, be revealed at the last time. Like if we've put our faith in Jesus, Jesus has risen from the dead, which means our eternal security is certain, 100% certain, because we're not relying on our good works, we're not trusting in ourselves to try to earn our way to God. Our security is in our faith in what He's done for us, in our faith in His resurrection. It's eternal, secure. Remember when Jesus was talking to Thomas, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. This is this inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And why do we get it? It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Our eternity is secure, so we should do, and we're going to do here in a moment, is we're going to worship, because that's what he says we should do right there at the start, right? Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can praise God because our salvation is in him. He's risen from the dead, and he promised that he will give us new life when we've put our faith in him. And finally, what it means for us today is it means that God can change your life no matter where you are. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God can indwell you when you put faith in Him, and He can change your life, whether you're a disqualified sinner like Peter, whether you're a prideful judger like John, or whether you're the perpetual doubter like Thomas. No matter what your story is, where you're coming from, the truth is that because Jesus is alive, His Spirit can indwell you, and He can change your life. He can take you from wherever you are to be more like Him. That's what Jesus promises in the resurrection. The disqualified can be reinstated. The promise breakers can become the promise keepers. The prideful can grow humble. The judgers can become merciful. The doubters can become believers. So I'd urge us all to believe in the power of the resurrection today because it can change our life. It can change you. The power of the Spirit can make you a new man, can make you a new woman, can make you a new husband, can make you a new wife, can make you a new parent, can make you a new friend, can make you a new neighbor can make you a new disciple maker, can make you a new witness. That's the spirit of the risen Jesus that can indwell us and change us, and he promises to do so. One of the things that we need to do is what the disciples did to remember the resurrection was to take this meal. And here we are, 2,000 years later, later, those who did not see him, yet we still believed. And we take this time of communion to reflect on the fact that this is true, that we believe, like that first creed, of first importance, that Jesus died, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead. We're going to sing about that. We're going to worship. We're going to do it through taking communion. We have communion up here in the front and in the back. I would encourage you, as you take it today, to believe in the resurrection and its impact that it can have in your life and spend time in prayer and asking God to move in you as we have this time of worship. Cameron and Kristen are available in the back. We'd like to offer them to pray. If there's anything going on in your life, whether related to something this morning or anything else in your life, they would be really glad to pray for you. We believe that God moves through the Spirit when we pray. And so go back and see them for prayer if you'd like. Let me close this in prayer, and let's really worship God together this morning. God, we just, we say like Thomas, you're our Lord and our God. You are our Lord. 
We worship you, the risen one. I pray, God, for any of that are here that don't know that joy or have that belief, that you'd stir their hearts to faith, that they, like Thomas, could say, I believe, my Lord and my God. Even as we worship today, God, solidify that in our hearts in a way that changes us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.